Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Lisa Lindström with me. Welcome to my podcast, Lisa. Thank you so much. Lisa Lindström is the CEO of Doberman, an experienced design firm with offices in Stockholm and New York. And they partner with bold organizations to deliver products and services that break through the noise. Lisa is also a popular speaker and we know an expert on strategic design and customer experience, as well as organizational transformation and leadership. Lisa, I want to kick off with one question I'm curious about. What is actually Doberman's purpose? I think Doberman's purpose is always changing. And I guess that that's not really following the book of how it should be. But because we live in a society that moves fast, we also always need to realign with the reason why we exist. So right now, we exist to make sure that we can create as much impact as we can for organizations and therefore also individuals, but also society. And with impact, I mean making sure that we can really utilize all the capacity that is kind of not always used in the best way. It could be human capacity, it could be data, it could be almost like secret superpowers that Mm. exist in corporates that we need to polish and make into new products and services. That's kind of a long purpose. Okay, short purpose is we're here to make things. To make things and make things happen. And make things happen. So in a way, like a big facilitator of things also, right? Yeah, so that's because I think that the power of design is to facilitate change, Mm. but to do that through making, not through talking. And that's the kind of huge difference when you use design as your facilitator for change compared to other capacities. Mm. Mm. That's so true. And you've, um, you're an independent company. I read somewhere you're run by the people working here. What, what does that really mean? So basically, if you think about this whole philosophy of, of using all capacity that you have in your organization, mm. one of, I think, the most untapped capacities in all organizations is the employees. So very often I think that we have a management structure that assumes that the management team is the smartest ones and they should be the ones making the decisions. Whereas here we think the 100 people who worked here are, as a collective, smarter than the top person. So the most difficult decisions we delegate to the organization and the easy decisions the management team could take. Mm. And that could be manifested in everything from our offering to our vision, of course, and and, and where we're heading, to how we are working, all these kind of very important strategic decisions through, of course, well-facilitated methods are decided by the organization. Very clever. And to make sure that this is not only some sort of lip service, we also offer everyone who works here to become an owner. So currently out of the 100 people, we are 55 owners. And the 45 who are not owners, it's not that they were not allowed to. It's only that for them, it was not important. They feel that they can make decisions anyway. Mm. And if you grow to, let's say, 300 or more people, you would do the same thing. Yeah. 
all through this journey, everyone have said to me, yeah, that's, you know, you, you can do that because you're 25 people. And yeah, you can do that because you're 50 people. And everyone said, can you do this in a huge organization of 5,000 people? First of all, I don't know. But my hypothesis is yes, but through other methods. So that's how we evolved. We've had this philosophy throughout the whole journey. And it's just that we have kind of redesigned the methods that we're using. But the core DNA, the core philosophy is still there. And I guess that's the reason I read that you've been voted best place to work, best digital design firm in Sweden and so on. Yeah. Are there any other kind of keys behind your formula that you would like to highlight? Being the best place to work is all about understanding the needs and the dreams in your organization. So it's not at all about having the best coffee or free pizza or even, uh, you know, gadgets and stuff. It's basically people uh, spend a lot of time in their workplace and they want to be respected. Uh, they want to be treated as adults. Uh, they want to be included, like I've just said. Mm. But they also want to have the opportunity to flourish and, and develop both as people and individuals and, and within themselves, mm -hmm. as well as the kind of, of projects that we provide to them. Mm. So we try to listen a lot and understand that what is important for the people who work here right now and mm. try to serve them with kind of the right conditions for them to mm. expand. But in practical terms, how do you go about understanding, for example, your, let's say, 100 employees, their, let's say, dreams or their blueprint? Very good question. I've done tons of mistakes and just asked them. And that is a little bit too difficult because that will give you a wish list that is super complicated to deliver. Mm. So it's more of triggering by showing the different paths where we can go and have them help you choose what of these are important for them, uh, but also tell them here, if we go this path, these are the consequences. Mm. So when I say really treat people as adults, it's like mm. show the whole picture mm. and not just ask, you know, what is it that you want or need? Because that will only give me the image of being the Santa Claus and I cannot do that. Mm. And I also think it's about having a true dialogue always. Uh, so it's more a culture thing to make sure that you allow people to express their dreams and express their needs in a very safe environment. That, that is not about the processes for doing that or having like a particular system. That is really a culture phenomenon. Mm. How would you define that? What is culture really? Culture is the result of acting on your values. So I have a difficulty saying our culture should be because I think that culture is something evolutionary that it's constantly changing. So I think it's easier to say and easier to agree on what are the values that we want to build our company upon. And then the culture is kind of the result of acting upon those values. So the only thing I can do as a leader, mm -hmm. is to connect to those values and make sure that they are aligned with me so that I don't even have to fight to live them. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why I have a problem, you know, when I walk into one of my clients and they have like four words 
written on the wall and everyone is supposed to deliver upon them. I think that's pretty complicated and could be even exhausting. Whereas if, if you're following values and if they are aligned with who you are, that's just natural. Exactly. What are your values here? We have not written them down because we don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. I can only talk about the values that I have. And I think that they are very basic. They are like a fundamental belief in people and the way that I see people. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think it all starts and ends with I believe in people. And I need to treat people the way that is connected to my beliefs. Mm. So I understand that, you know, Can you be values-driven without having written down your values? Yes, I think you can. Yeah, I think so too. As long as you say you live it on a daily basis and it comes natural, then people get it. They yeah. kind of absorb it and make it theirs uh, and then contribute as well. Yeah. But I was thinking about New York and the think tank in Berlin, right? What kind of fuel does that presence there give you and the whole organization? I think it fuels back and forth. <laughs> so it's exciting to have another geographic studio in New York because you can try out your thoughts and beliefs and skills on another market. It also fuels back because then they could reflect things. So the Stockholm offices are HQ. So mm. uh, a lot of the innovation when it comes to how we do things is coming from here, but it also kind of fuels back of, of great things that is happening in New York. So it's almost like having an ecosystem of new energy that is, is kind of floating back and forth between the offices. Mm -hmm. It's also a demanding market, New York. So I think we need to be even more explicit in our offering and in our way of working and in our storytelling on that market. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a newer market for us. We've only been there for five years. Mm -hmm. It's great energy, but it's also, I can tell you, this management style that I have that I just said about delegating to people is of course more difficult to implement in another geographical region. So I've learned a lot about my own management style through trying to practice it in another geographical market. And that's been amazing. Every time I fly back, I have new reflections. And those reflections are basically on stuff that I've been doing for a long time, but that I have to revisit and actively choose again, or maybe choose not to continue to do. Mm. What is the biggest difference between when you meet, uh, let's say, a corporation here in Stockholm and a client of yours in New York? First of all, a very practical thing is time. So uh, in Scandinavia, we are very structured. And if you get two hours, you will get your two hours. Whereas in the US, you're much more result oriented. So when they think that the meeting is over, it's over. So even if you schedule two hours and they think that you're done after 37 minutes, then you're done. So you need to be much more flexible, much more um, musical to what's happening in the room, I would have to say. The other thing is that uh, Sweden is pretty advanced when it comes to digitalization. So there are much more polarized industry in the US where you have the most pioneering tech companies in the world, but also maybe the less tech savvy corporates as well. Mm -hmm. So it is a much broader spectra. Mm -hmm. 
they are also more experts driven so they are looking for the individuals in your organization who is the expert on something in Scandinavia you could sell a team much easier than over there it's much more of like who did that who was the designer who did that particular thing and they want to meet that person like it's more superstar driven yeah. and in Scandinavia it's more team driven mm. There's mm-hmm. so many differences. We can go on for hours <laughs> to talk about that. But um, one of the, your most uh, recent, uh, I don't know if we can call it a project, but still your sister company, right? The Doberman Forward yeah. initiative. I find that very interesting. Just briefly, can you tell us what's going on and why do you do that? Um, so when we started in New York, we became a startup firm. So most of our clients in New York has been uh, startups. And we've seen the value that we've added and created for these startups. Some of them are huge today and have an you know, amazing evaluation. And we've been part of that value creation. So one of the reasons is actually that we want to be you know, part of getting some gains from the value that we create. The second reason why we do it is that A lot of our designers love to work with startups and think that it's a really fascinating work to do. But not all startups can afford a mature design firm as Doberman. So then we need to risk something to be able to work with those talents and and fascinating companies. Mm -hmm. So that is the reason, number two, why we do invest. And the third reason is that, of course, we also need to have more metrics on proving that design can really increase value. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if we can do that through this investment company, and just to clarify what it is, Doberman Forward is an investment company that invests in startups where we think that design can add value. Mm -hmm. And currently we have six companies in, in our portfolio and we're growing in a good path. Very good, very clever thing to do, really. Uh, I mean, it's helping, and it's at the same time, you, as you say, it's growing your own value. Driving change and also, I mean, generally adapting to change is always like a challenge to everyone. But what tools do you actually use to help to kind of propel organizations? Very often, the challenge for an organization is not that they don't know where to go. The challenge is how to get there. Mm. And I think it's because we speak in a language that is very rational and we don't help people to take the first step. We show them here's where we're heading and then sometimes just go ahead and execute. Mm. I think the way to do change is through practice, through rehearsing, through trying it out, through taking small steps and constantly evaluating. So one of the things that we offer a lot is actually to have organizations try out prototyping, try out co-creating with customers, uh, taking smaller steps towards their future selves Mm. instead of doing huge reorganizations or huge programs or those tend to get stuck in a lot of talking about how we should work instead of working. (laughs) (laughs) They tend to talk about how we should be organized instead of just making a team. Mm -hmm. And I try to have organizations to break down and try out hypotheses of what is it to work in the future and work like that today and not do it big. 
So you can do a digital strategy in five weeks and then you can redo it again after six months instead of doing that huge piece of strategy for nine months. Mm. And then when you get there, what if it's old? So break it down into smaller pieces, mm. rehearsing and include everyone in your organization. One of, I think, the, the challenges in organization is that you tend to do change work through management instead of doing it collectively. So how can you activate everyone and can you have everyone get like a sense or almost in your body feel like how it is to work in this organization? What am I supposed to do? How am I, how am I supposed to act? How do you hold their hands? I mean, how do you really practically help them? We have toolkits that you can try out. And that's what I'm saying that you can practice. I think that the fastest way to practice a new way of working that I think is valuable is one day. Or you can do it, my favorite length would be six weeks where you would meet us once a week and then you do a lot of homework in between. And then you, of course, can do it for six months also. Mm -hmm. But it's very hands-on, practical ways of working on not fake things, but something that is really business critical so that you really put in your time and value and heart into it. Mm. So very often, you know, we worked with actually helping 10 cities in parallel to work with problems that they couldn't solve. And we said to them, take the most critical problem that you cannot solve and work on that together with your citizens and see if we can, you know, find a new method and way of working to solve that. And everywhere there is so much talking and uh, discussions around the optimal customer experience, right? What is an optimal customer experience and how do you create that? I think an optimal customer experience is something that cuts through the noise. There's so many interactions today. There's so much services and products and the optimal one is a fine balance between something extraordinary providing that little extra as well as being almost invisible. (laughs) And this is difficult. It's a difficult craft to do that. But if you think about a very old example, but if you think about something like SVT Play, an on-demand service for television made by Mm. the public service that we made, uh, it's a very simple, straightforward service Like the functionality is almost invisible, but it's cutting through the noise because it was actually offering something that did not exist at the time. Mm. But when you see it, it feels like it's always been there Mm. and it's intuitive so everyone can use it. You don't have to have any instructions. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, Toka Boka, the the children's apps. They have no instructions. It's intuitive in the way that, you know, you just start play with it and it gets part of your everyday because it feels so natural. Mm. I think that is a brilliant customer experience. Uh, But it also needs to add this little bit of a surprise, that extraordinary, you know, the moment of truth kind of Mm. thing as well. But Elisa, getting back to you, what would you say is your, uh, what I would call passion? And that coming from this old Latin word, you know, batira, which means really that you are also willing to suffer for it. It's not just something you like and think is fun. It's really something you think is important. What would that be for you? To fix the unfairness. To fix the unfairness. Yeah. I think it's been my driver since I was a kid that 
I cannot stand seeing the world being unfair. And that goes from everything from, you know, our educational system to equality to society. It, it goes through like all different parts of every room I walk into. And it's really like you're saying, it's not that I took on an easy passion. So I think fixing the unfairness is one of my passions. Mm -hmm. I also think if this could be a passion, but to be opportunity driven and, and see things as changeable and that everything is possible is also driving me a lot. And I need a lot of resistance having that point of view often. But I think it's really, why not? Why couldn't I try it this way or to question things? And I have a difficulty taking no for an answer. <laughs> But this passion, do you feel that you can express it through what you do at Doberman? Always. Always. Yeah. I've chosen this job. I've chosen this path. I chose it and I re-chose it every day. Mm. So I do not have something called private life and work life. Mm. I am me. Mm. And I think that I'm equipped with a certain like tool sets and capacities and I use them to work on my path and my passion. So yes, of course. Mm. And if it's not like that, I need to sometimes readjust. If I feel that, okay, right now I'm not on that path, then I need to kind of reconnect and make sure that it becomes my passion. Mm. Is there anything in particular when you say I need to reconnect that you do or think when you kind of reconnect, kind of center yourself? You know, when you, when you feel a little bit of an itch mm. in yourself, I take that seriously. And I try to look at it. And it sounds simple, but I look at it and I, I say, what is this? Is it uh, something someone did to me or is it that I'm on the wrong path right now doing the wrong things? Okay, here's a simple thing that I do. I look at my calendar every week and I say, am I making the most value out of this week or not? And if I'm not, I actually say no to things that is not the most valuable thing to do that week. Mm -hmm. And I try not to be hijacked by my calendar, that other people's willingness to do things with me is before my own. So I think I, I take myself pretty seriously in the sense that I need to be driver of my own both life and work life and I need to reconnect. Mm. And how do I do that practically outside my calendar is, you know, every little piece in your day where I'm alone, I think I reflect. Mm -hmm. So this morning, for example, I took my car and I drove the kids to school. And then when I drove from the school, I had a little bit of this itch. So that is like a reflection time. So this, I'm not the person who's doing like a yearly annual review. <laughs> I think it's more like a minute review throughout the day. <laughs> so it's more practical and, and valuable also, I think. What transformational points in your life have influenced you the most, do you think? You know, these points where you say, okay, something changed there. It can be small, it can be big. Where should I start? I thought every kid was singing solo and... When I ended first grade, I was the only one doing that for the whole school. That was a transformational point because I was equipped with so much self-confidence that I thought everyone was doing that. 
So that was the first time I realized that people can be scared of different things. That was transformational. I think it was very transformational. I was sick between 20 and 25. So that was, of course, a huge transformational period in my life, being in a totally different universe. And that has given me a lot of empathy mm. for people who are in other universes and other pockets of our society that could be kind of invisible when you are in your like ordinary work life. So I hope that that has given me an understanding and empathy for other needs that and other fights that people are fighting every day and that my fights are pretty small today compared to those fights that people that I've you know, both being myself and, and, and others, mm. um, going to Hyper Island was very transformational because for the first time I met people who were equally driven and always wanted to work, always wanted to create things, always wanted to build on things, mm -hmm. said yes every day, tried new things, dared to uh, go wrong. You know, that I felt so... At home there. At home there. <laughs> I felt like, oh, here, there are others like me. Um, and another transformational piece was actually the first time I, I, I worked in the U.S. where I felt, oh, wow, I can be as loud as this. I'm, I've always felt super loud and, and super extroverted in, in Sweden and, and kind of always been fighting a little bit against that. Mm. Not a lot. I'm still loud. But... But when I, when I came there, I was like, oh, everyone is like this. And, and it's so accepted and mm. appreciated. Mm. Uh, that was fascinating. <laughs> so that was four things. Mm. But do you think that sometimes in life that things happen for a reason in a way? I do not think that any illness or handicaps or sickness is there for a reason. I think that's an unbelievably difficult mm. thing to embrace. So no, I do not think that I was given those years to learn. Mm. Those were extremely difficult years for me and I actually did not like a lot of that time. Did I learn a lot about myself? Yes, but you do that in life. I would have learned other things between 20 and 25. Imagine what you did. Mm. I guess you were traveling or mm. going to university or hanging out with friends or even having friends. Mm. I did not do any of that. I've mm. not been mm. taking any university courses because when I came out of, of my sickness, I needed to be like super fast into the world. That we're never having those years when we're just exploring life. Mm. Imagine what I could have learned throughout those years instead. Mm. So even if some people would say you're so strong because you had those years, you would have been anyways. I would have learned other things. Mm. So I, no, I do not think that they happened for a reason. Mm. And uh, if we go back to this world of business and so on, what is the kind of a long-term formula or solution that you believe for, for any kind of business, any kind of organization? Companies need to use, like I said before, all capacities in their organizations. Mm. First of all, they need to use employees better. 
I think that they need to use their customers and co-create with the customers much, much more. Mm-hmm. They should use technology in clever ways to uh, catalyze new products and services. Mm. I also think that companies should take on larger responsibilities for society, meaning putting all their cleverness and scalability and business-minded thinking into solving the most critical problems that we have in the world. And they will be profitable doing so. So it's not a contradiction. Mm. Uh, So I have huge hope for what businesses should do. And I see a lot of people thinking like this. Some of them need to be unleashed a little bit. I think some of them still think it's someone else's job. And uh, because we are raised that way, we're raised in a way that society has, there are certain rules in society. So government should be responsible for that and companies should be responsible for that. Mm. And individuals should be responsible for something else. I think that we need to revisit that. I think that we almost need to divide the landscape in Mm. a new way. But in my opinion, I think it's the companies who need to be driving that. I do not think right now Mm. that it's going to be our politicians who will drive that. And, Mm. you know, I just came home from Austin from a tech festival there. And there was this amazing shift where tech companies and politicians were on the stage talking about the same issues. And I think that's exactly Mm. what, what needs to happen. Yes, you need to be on the same stage And you need to talk about, and you need to learn from each other. Tech companies know exactly what technology can do, but politicians know how to create frameworks that make sure that we do not use that technology or anything in the wrong way. So they need to be like defining the rules, Mm. whereas tech companies need to educate on the opportunities. And, you know, if they can, if we can see more of that, Mm. where where we walk together, we are specialists and we do things together. That's what I see in the future. Mm. And then some kind of bigger integration between corporations and society. Yes. I would love to see that more. Yes. And I want to be there to see that that happens. Like Mm. when I say unfairness, my driver is to fix the unfairness. This is unfair. It's Mm. unfair, Mm. the society that we live in today. Okay, Mm. what can I do about it? Well, I can, as a a corporate, I can, you know, start to uh, work on these issues and hopefully uh, engage a couple of others to do the same. Mm. But if you would assume, let's say, you have all doors open and lots of resources available to you, what would you then innovate or change? Education first. Mm. Uh, I think this is a, a shift in mindset. Because technology is going to offer us a lot of opportunities where the linear things will be automated and made out of robots, uh, education needs to shift from people not only having skills uh, in, in math and, and so on, which is also needed, but, but not only. We also need to have a shift where education needs to stimulate creativity, uh, stimulate free association, stimulate music, art, uh, all of these things that makes us human, stimulate our ability to reflect and connect and think higher. So I think that is one of the areas where we need to evolve as society. The second thing is to think about healthcare because we are getting older. How should we cope with that? And and how do we make a more fair distribution of healthcare in our society? 
I would also, um, of course, think about how we use our nature, our resources in, in a much more clever way. Mm. And if I, on top of that, could kind of also rethink governance and rethink who is responsible for what in society, that would be lovely. If we go back like 15 years ago and you would try to give a good piece of advice to yourself, what would that be? You don't have to fix everything yourself. It's not... Uh, so I've always had this view that it's kind of disrespectful to give people your boring stuff. I've always, like, I want to give gifts. Like, I want to, you know, I want you to work on something exciting. Mm. And I think that's unbearable when you're, you know, taking on huge tasks that I need to fix all the boring things myself. I've learned that now. But I think that is, like, a set of values within myself where just taking, like, no, I should not have an assistant because no one needs to pick up my shit. I could have learned that a little bit earlier. (laughs) Other from that, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I've always been, you know, I don't have that many regrets. Mm. It's not just in my mindset, because I've been trying, as I said, I'm reflecting all the time, every day. It's not that I have done, like, if, and if I've done a huge mistake, it hurts, and then you adjust. So it's not that I have those big things in life that I wanted to change. Mm. What do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now if you have to pick, you know, one thing that is kind of unifying all kinds of companies and organizations around us? Ways of working and leadership style. Our leadership style that we have today, our management style, is um, designed for Mm. the production society, a very linear society. Mm. And we know that now. And we should not stop doing that. So we need to continue to do that. But we need to add one dimension where we also add much more flexibility. And each and every company that I talk to today, they don't talk about digitalization. They talk about acceleration. They talk about them coping with speed. And that's why I think that that kind of comes out of ways of working and the way that you lead to be very particular the way you make decisions. It's very often that you try out, oh, we're doing prototyping and we're trying out new things here, but you still have your like old decision-making paradigm. And, mm. and that is kind of creating a lot of barriers in, in organizations. I mean, I would also love for companies to reconnect with their purpose and have like a value-driven mindset, but that is actually coming as number two. I know it would be more political correct to say that as kind of number one, but I actually think ways of working and leadership comes before. Mm. Need to be fixed in order for the other one to flourish, right? So true. And my last question is, you know, if we elevate even higher, you know, what do you think the world needs the most at this time? A very clear story about the purpose of why we exist. Because if we have that, Mm. then people could connect and gain hope. So no one is evil. That is my view. So no one is evil. But if you kind of get on the wrong path towards your role in society, you start to act on other people's wantings and behaviors. Mm. But if it's clear to you why we are here, and I'm not saying that I know what that story is, 
You know, there could be religions telling that story and that could be political leaders telling that story. It could be corporate mm. leaders telling that story. But I think that the world needs some sort of movement where people start to act from themselves. And if they really, really, really listen into themselves, it's going to be people are good. And they know if they have integrity and would follow their hearts and not be driven by fear or not be driven by rules, but be driven by themselves, we would start a journey towards a better world, a better society. And the tricky thing here is who would dare to tell such story? And who has the mandate from people in the world to be listened to? And who has like the magnetism to create followers? And what if that person would be the wrong person? So the magnetism and the stories told is directed towards the wrong path. So one of the reasons we have Donald Trump is because he connects to people's emotional stories about the world. Mm. He's telling very simple stories in a language that people understand. And they become his followers because they understand. They can connect to some sort of picture. I disagree on that picture, but since they don't have any other one that is as easy to understand, I think that he has followers. And deep down, probably people know that he's not the solution, but at least they've parked themselves there for the time being, awaiting something better, yes. right? Something that they can relate to and, and uh, yeah, it's amazing actually. Now, I'm, this last question is definitely not easy, but uh, at the same time, I think it's so relevant just to ask it and understand what everybody's thinking around it, because if we can't figure out what is it that unites us, then it becomes so difficult. But it's interesting you pointing out the individual perspective, which means that we have some kind of, let's call it, a truth inside of yeah. ourselves. And one part of that truth is the same for all of us. Yes. You, we are, we're all drops from you know, the same yeah. water, so yeah. to say. So going into that, connecting with yourself, I think definitely is um, an excellent uh, way. So Lisa, it's wonderful to talk to you. Our time is out. And uh, um, just a quick question. How was it to be on the podcast? It was interesting. I like those questions that you asked and it made me relearn a few things. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for sharing everything. And to find out more about Lisa and her work, you can head to doberman.co and also follow her on social media. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And I also truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Thank you for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao.